Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Today, we are gonna talk about space-based missile warning and tracking. And I get it, it's not something you think about every day, but trust me, it is really important. To put it bluntly, missile strikes are largely how the enemy is going to attack us, whether it be forward operating bases or the homeland itself. Now, we tend to think about long-range strike in the context of bombers, but our adversaries have invested a lot in missiles. We need to get real about developing modern warning systems to help us track these threats and defend against them if they are ever launched. Parts of this plan are already in play, but a lot needs to be done to hone this effort and align the various pieces. Now, to be clear, missile warning and tracking is not a new mission. We had to develop this technology decades ago in response to the threat posed by Soviet nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missiles. Those systems and their follow-ons have served our nation well for more than 50 years. And today, the current space-based infrared system, or SIBRS for short, is the most advanced ballistic missile warning capability in the world. However, our adversaries, and by that I'm largely referencing China and Russia again, are changing the rules of the game with the systems that they're fielding. They want to hold our bases and our homeland at risk. They understand how our current defenses work, and they're developing new technologies to exploit gaps. That's the main driver of why they're developing a new generation of hypersonic missiles. And if that wasn't enough, China and Russia are also deploying new anti-satellite weapons, we call those ASATs for short, to hold key parts of our missile warning and tracking enterprise at risk. So you add up a new generation of threats, specifically optimized to exacerbate our vulnerabilities combined with a new set of offensive space capabilities to attack our existing missile warning and tracking enterprise, and you realize it's time for a reset. We need to look at a new set of technologies and strategies to ensure we can still defend our bases and the homeland. Now, obviously this is a really big deal. So with that, let's cut to the conversation. Christopher Sohn, Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence, has spent the past few months digging into this challenge, not only to just look at the problem, but to investigate where we need to go to deliver solutions. He just released a report on this topic, arguing that the DoD must create a more resilient, survivable, multi-orbit sensor architecture that can track these new threats in queue defenses. All right. Well, Chris, uh, I'm really fired up about this paper. Welcome back to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Well, you know, you've also done a really good job of getting a great group for this podcast. So we're really fortunate to be joined by uh, some top-notch uh, practitioners in the field. So we'll, let's start off with Dr. Davin Swanson. He's the chief engineer with Raytheon Intelligence and Space. Thanks. Good to be here. And then we also have, again, uh, on the Aerospace Advantage, Lieutenant Colonel Brandon Coach Davenport. He's the former commander of the 2nd Space Warning Squadron, and that's the Space Force's Cyber Squadron. So, Coach, welcome back. Thanks, Slick. Um, as some folks know, uh, this is definitely a passion area for me. And I'll just highlight, having been on the floor as the, the Iranians launched those missiles into Iraq back uh, in January 2020, I, I just have a very visceral reaction to this mission area when it comes to keeping the Joint Force safe. So thank you for having me today. 
Yeah, and Coach, you, uh, you were missed at Patch Night. I just want to give a shout-out to uh, especially the weapons uh, school class, 22 Alpha, the, the space folks. They were awesome, and I was able to get one of their patches, which is super cool. So I uh, just really appreciate the class and, and all the efforts that they're doing because so much of their mission, as, as we've talked about on this podcast, is you know hidden behind the green door of secrecy, and uh, we know that you guys are doing really good work. So with that, let's go ahead and get uh, started. And Chris, I want to get started with you. Uh, I know we're facing a ton of challenges in the security world right now. So why should we care about this topic? Well, first, let me just say that this this issue that the paper has published on missile warning and tracking is a now issue. It is not a future issue. Uh, the issue is essentially big picture is that the United States homeland, as well as our deployed forces overseas, are currently at risk of short-range ballistic missiles, as well as uh, a whole plethora of other types of missile systems, to include some of them being hypersonic, and many of the others being low-flying, um, non-ballistic maneuvering type of missile systems that are designed to counter our current ground-based radars and our space-based sensors that were designed primarily for the Cold War intercontinental ballistic missile and theater ballistic missile systems. And so because of that, um, as, as Dav mentioned earlier, um, the Iraqi strike is an example as that was, and I believe still is, the largest missile attack on U.S. forces in history. And we're basically in a situation now where, where missile warfare is now becoming of age. It's becoming heavily proliferated by our, our adversaries, China and Russia in particular, as well as some of the smaller powers like Iran and North Korea. And so because of that, it is very, very important that we have a space-based missile system that not only can uh, warn of the missiles in- inbound, but can also track them. And that's one area that we have a huge problem with right now because of these systems flying lower, because they're infrared signature, which is how we, we usually warn and track from space, um, are much lower because of the altitude and because of the of the type of engines it has on it. As a result of that, we have a hard time tracking these from launch to impact. And when you add in maneuverability and hypersonics into the mix, it becomes extremely, extremely challenging. And because of that, uh, this is a problem that has to be dealt with. And so looking forward to the discussion today on both what the report said, but also what the experts in the field here have to say about the topic. So, Coach, as an operator and a, uh, as a weapons school graduate, can you talk to us why it's so important to evolve our current missile warning and tracking enterprise? Uh, and how is the enemy evolving their technology and strategies, and what does it mean for us? Yeah, thank you for the question. What we're really looking at is a story that's really old as time, right? You have uh, a capability. One country makes one capability. Another country then follows up with a counter capability. And so... You've seen aircraft, you know, first-gen fighters, second-gen, third-gen, fourth-gen. Uh, if you use that same mental concept towards space, you see these systems, the missile warning systems, like the Defense Support Program, which celebrated its 50th anniversary recently, right? That's first-gen. It was really good for intercontinental ballistic missiles, but then we rec- recognized it was kind of good for Gulf War 1991-style SCUDs. Uh, but it drove a requirement for the second generation, the space-based infrared system, uh, which performed very well, again, in that, that attack against uh, U.S. forces in Iraq, uh, but again, against a ballistic threat. And as the adversaries evolve their capabilities, you know, they're, they're watching uh, our first-gen and second-gen systems operate. They saw the value of having uh, missile, uh, uh, you know, I didn't speak to them, but the missile defense systems also iterate first-gen Patriot, PAC-3 now, uh, Standard Missile 3, Theater High Institute Air, Air Defense, THAAD systems. You're seeing these Corollary defense systems also iterate in generations. And so they're iterating their capabilities. And so they've recognized that ballistic trajectories aren't going to cut it. Uh, they now need to 
maneuver around and attempt to defeat our, our tracking systems to increase the lethality of really their, their primary force rejection capability, right? I think even if you look at Ukraine, the Russian Air Force uh, has not performed well. I'll let the intel analysts come back with the final determination of the Russian missile capability. But uh, what isn't uh, in doubt is the number of weapons they have launched against the Ukrainian uh, population. And so, uh, you know, I think the war today will see, uh, and war in the future will see a continued use of these systems. And therefore, these newer systems that have, as Chris mentioned, hypersonics or maneuverability or just uh, differences in ballistic trajectories, those drive a new iteration in our require in our system, a, a third generation to maintain our edge, to defend, and to to warrant to provide warning and tracking. All right. Well, Chris, uh, I know you talked about this in your paper, and you mentioned the report, which can be found on our website. But what was your proposed solution? Well, our proposed solution was that instead of having uh, what we've had before, which is a combination of ground-based radars, um, such as the phase array radars we have surrounding the continental United States, uh, as well as some theater radar systems like the TIPI-2 that we, we use with our interceptors and missile defense assets overseas, um, but because of the curvature of the Earth and because of that being exploited by the lower-flying missiles and the higher-speed hypersonics, that we really should have a multi-layered, multi-orbit approach to not only have what we have with our Cyber system, our space-based infrared satellite, which is in a combination geo and heo, which means geostationary, geosynchronous Earth orbit, and highly elliptical Earth orbit, uh, which is about 35,000 miles out from the surface of the Earth, and has great field of view, so you can see about a third of the Earth with each satellite. So you have constant warning both for theater and for um, for worldwide missile missile warning. And then have a medium Earth orbit a sensor to help with tracking, as well as a low Earth orbit, proliferated low Earth orbit, or LEO constellation, that is helpful for enhanced tracking as well as what's known as fire control which allows us to track them real-time and plot a intercept solution for missile defense uh, systems. And so with that, plus with some other things we'll mention later, such as being able to actually actively protect these satellites against counterspace threats, which is not just a missile problem with this, with this force design, it's also a threat from space, thus the need of the Space Force who operates these vehicles to have the ability to maneuver and to do other things to actively defend them rather than just relying on sheer numbers. So we'll we'll talk about that more, but that's essentially what the what the report advocates for. Well, Chris, thanks for that. And Coach, what are your thoughts on uh, Chris's uh, response? My personal belief, right, is that is exactly uh, a concept we need to apply. The, as you heard me speak earlier about that third generational concept, that third generation does need to be multi-layered. It needs to be able to take a punch. It needs to be able to respond to the changing character of war. Uh, you know, as General Raymond likes to mention, right, uh, space has always been hard. We've always dealt with gamma rays, space weather, uh, just the physics of orbit. And now we're adding these additional threats that we have to re- react to that uh, all of our Treshley-based joint uh, warfighters are familiar with, just reacting to the enemy. It's very difficult to retroactively build tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, to respond to adversary capabilities. It's not impossible, but it's, it's more difficult. And so as you, if you were to build a, a new system that is going to continue our advantage for missile warning and tracking, you're also going to need to design a system that's resilient, multi-layered, and, and can defeat threats potentially with things like decoys or other types of uh, maneuver capability to, to ensure that resiliency. 
Well, Coach, um, you're going to be earning your, your patch pay today. Can you paint a picture for us? And, you know, let's say an enemy launches a missile, sh- missile strike. Uh, talk to me about how this new warning and tracking enterprise works from a macro perspective. And can you explain to the audience the difference between warning and tracking? And Because as I understand it, uh, they're two totally different tasks that require different capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, Chris mentioned that you know the geosystems really provide great uh, warning, I, and I always like to bend this. I put two words in front of uh, it's passive warning and active tracking, and that's the the passive warning uh, is very much what you saw uh, again in that. I keep going back to it, but it's a good salient talking point. That attack in Iraq, there was no missile defense capabilities embedded at at those air bases, and so. Uh, the warning was purely a passive action to provide for the joint force to take protective actions so they would minimize casualties. Uh, and warning primarily is focused with the boost phase of a, of a missile. So if you picture, you know, if you've seen Falcon 9's launch, launch or just the Scud uh, YouTube videos, as the rocket lifts off, as the missile lifts off, it's under thrust. And that high energy, all the light you see out of the back, all the fire out of the back uh, allows these systems, these overhead infrared systems to detect the launch. And so, obviously, it's time-dependent, so this, the quicker you can get warning out, uh, the more aware that, that the joint force can be to react to the threat. Uh, and so, that passive warning is really cued to that missile launch, that boost phase of launch. Now, after burnout, this is where things have iterated, right? So, historically, after burnout, we kind of knew where the missile was going because it was ballistic. It was just a rock with a warhead falling back to Earth. Now, with the additional capabilities uh, of maneuverability or hypersonics or uh, the glide vehicles as they come through the atmosphere and maneuver, our propagation mathematics no longer can predict where that missile is going. And therefore, you need to layer in a active tracking component that enables our defense systems to know, I think as Chris mentioned, to provide a, a fire control solution to our uh, interceptors and, and defense systems. Uh, and so that you heard me say after boost. So that means there's no more you know, hot, uh, easily detectable fire coming out of the back of the missile. So now you need a different look angles and different, the same family of sensors, but different physics. Uh, perhaps I'll let Dr. Swanson add in uh, the technical details there. But when it, uh, you, you want to be able to continue to track that reentry vehicle or potentially missile uh, as a cold body against the back blackness of space. Or uh, you can just imagine where if you're much closer at a lower altitude, say in a Leo and a proliferated Leo constellation, it's a lot easier to look at something that's only a couple hundred kilometers away from you or, or even closer than, say, 22 or 32,000 kilometers away uh, from geo. And so that, that the different look angle and different sensor composition and the, and the multiple sensors looking at one target allows a much uh, higher chance uh, for tracking, again, to enable defense. Yeah, I just wanted to add one more thing, uh, I guess, to what Coach was saying is, is each each layer has the ability to track over a certain amount of time based on the altitude. So the proliferated LEO has the ability potentially per what, what all the public all the published uh, stuff says between like five, 10 minutes per satellite because of the speed of the, of the orbit around the earth. The farther out you are like geo, it matches the rotation of the earth's turning on its axis. So it looks like it's hovering overhead. Whereas Medium Earth orbit, MEO or LEO are obviously flying at a lot faster rates relative to to the Earth, at least from our perspective. So as a result of that, as you go higher up, it increases the time that you can track. So having a layered approach would allow you to get initial warning from the GEO, hand off to the MEO, and then continually hand off as you go lower until you can have that real-time tracking to intercept. 
Now, what the audience can't see is that Chris Stone is actually talking with his hands like a fighter pilot as he's talking. It's because it's basically all about angles, right, Chris? And I know uh, Dr. Swanson here, uh, as a tech expert, really can can walk us through. Uh, sir, what are the technical challenges a concept like this might face, and how does it stack up from a tech readiness uh, level assessment? Well, I think that I think the technology is there, right? And I think that Chris and Coach have both done a really good job at, at describing the the advantages of, of the multi layered approach. And and there are there are prototyping efforts underway right now. Uh, the, the Space Development Agency, Space Systems Command, and Missile Defense Agency all have uh, prototyping efforts looking at, at, at all, all of these layers right now. Um, but uh, I, I, I think it's the right solution and the technology's there. Uh, we've just got to get that capability fielded for the warfighter. I, I'd like to expand a little bit on, on my view of, of why I think this is the right, the right approach, this multi-layered approach. And there's, there's really three, uh, three key, key principles there. There's, there's resiliency uh, that, that you gain through or, orbital diversity. Uh, there's the ability to tune the different designs at the different layers uh, to, to optimize to a different uh, portion of the missile warning, missile tracking requirement set, uh, depending on the orbit that you're in. And it allows the enterprise to shift away from an architecture where you've got a small number of high value assets up at GEO and, and HEO, which is basically where we are right now, uh, to a more proliferated constellation uh, in lower orbits. And there are some advantages to that. but. Touching on the resiliency piece, uh, adding the, these proliferated LEO and MEO layers to the current GEO and HEO missile warning baseline, the, the LEO layer has has advantages that it's closest to Earth and you can get the, the best sensitivity, the best performance out of these out of sensors at that orbit uh, from a sensitivity standpoint. But as was mentioned, uh, they they fly pretty fast. You've got a lot of handoffs between vehicles. Uh, it's also the closest. Uh, the closest layer to Earth, and it's the closest to the enemy's countermeasures, right? So LEO is a relatively dangerous place when it comes to the ability of the enemy to, to, uh, to, counter, to counteract our, our capabilities. But it does give you some advantages in being easy, you know, easy to get up there. You can launch more vehicles for cheaper into those lower orbits. Uh, so so there, there are some advantages there to that LEO solution. Neo's further away than Leo. It's not, I would say, a completely safe orbit, but it's safer. It's it's relatively open territory compared to the the crowded geo belt where uh, all the all the high value assets are are today. Um, aside from the the geo assets that we've got, and there's no standard Mio orbit or altitude, so uh, you've got kind of some some a little bit more safety in just the, the open space there. Uh, there. There's a large open space to uh, that the adversary would have to cover if they if they want to uh, if they want to attack our assets there. And then um, and Geo does have its advantages though. Coach mentioned Geo is a great place for warning because it's persistent. Uh, you're hovering over a, a specific spot uh, on the Earth. Um, and it's that sort of you know unblinking eye that's always there uh, looking at that that global coverage. But again, it's it's a it's a pretty busy orbit. It's well understood. There's lots of assets there, and we can expect the uh, the adversary to be ready to uh, to attack assets in geo if things go there. So the next part is the uh, the ability to tune these designs depending on which orbit you're in, and and there's a wide array of requirements across the warning and tracking missions, and and really it's one integrated end-to-end kill chain that we're talking about here, right? We talk about warning and tracking as if they're they're two different things, but it's really 
it's really they're complementary. Um, it's kind of a birth to death, uh, you know, detect a missile and take it out type of uh, type of kill chain that we're trying to support with both of these missions. So the sensor that you're designing for for the boost phase, the early phase warning might look significantly different than a sensor that you design for post boost tracking. And coach mentioned the, uh, the physics, the different phenomenology, he's hundred percent right. You know, different, the sensors might be looking, you know, have some different features, be looking in different infrared bands, uh, depending on what, what phase of flight these threats are in. So, um, you can, you can tune, uh, those sensors more optimally depending on what, what orbit you're in, but there is some overlap. You get kind of a belt and suspenders approach. If you do get into a contested environment where you've got the different layers supporting each other and not just stove piped into, you know, specific pieces of the mission that are given hundred percent to each layer. And then the other thing that, that is the advantage of this layered architecture is moving away just from putting all your eggs in this high valued asset basket and going to these proliferated constellations, right? As coach mentioned, we've got world-class warning assets up on orbit right now that have a lot of capability, uh, but there's a small number of them. Uh, they're very expensive. Uh, they're very long lead time to develop and launch. Uh, so losing one of them can create a significant capability gap, right? So, having your capability spread throughout these additional orbits uh, really gives you that resiliency, uh, as I mentioned before, that resiliency through orbital diversity. But to get there, to be able to enable that capability in LEO and MEO, uh, you need more vehicles, right? Uh, you need a lot more vehicles in LEO to provide the coverage that you need, that you would get at GEO. Uh, you need more vehicles in MEO than you would need at GEO. That gives you some more inherent resiliency to a loss of a single or a small group of vehicles, but it means you have to launch more, right? So that means you need, there's a strategy for that. And there's a lot of developments that have, that have come online in the last five to 10 years here that, that I think enable that, you know, miniaturized sensors, uh, we need to field sensors that are, that are less exquisite, that get the job done, right? That are, that are more affordable, but, you know, power in numbers lets you still get the capability to the warfighter that you need, but, with those less exquisite sensors. Uh, leveraging commercial space practices, right? You look at the, the commercial constellations that are being launched um, and product lines, production lines of these, of these sensors and these vehicles and these launchers. Having ongoing rolling production lines where you're, you're able to keep the production going, uh, less stoppage on and off allows you to react more quickly to adversary fielding new, new capabilities to insert technology where you need, need to. So developing these cheaper, but shorter life, but faster replenishment type vehicles, uh, leveraging the commercial practices um, enabled by you know, new entrants in space launch and new entrants in commercial space can really get you there. So, so there's a lot of advantages to this multi-layered approach. And I think, I think the technology is there and, and the, the DOD is certainly uh, moving in that direction to, to field capability. Yeah, and I'd also add like one more thing that uh, I'll mention. He mentioned both integration and strategy and while the Space Force's SWAC, Space, uh, Space Warfighting Analysis Center, has been working on their own force design, separate from the one that's proposed in the paper, I will mention that both Space Development Agency, Missile Development Agency, and the Space Force's projects were all created as separate solutions to the same problem. And so they're working at getting an integrated strategy to, to figure out what to do in the future. But one of the main things that has to happen, as Dr. Swanson says, is all these all these different designs are great pieces of an overarching puzzle, and it'd be much better if rather than picking one or two, that if we have a multi-layered approach and we integrate what's already out there and already being 
you know, tested design and almost ready to be launched in some cases is a way better approach than having just an exquisite place that can be targeted much easier. No, that, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and Dr. Swanson, you know, we don't get a chance to talk to uh, chief engineers very often. So I want to put you on the spot a little bit and dig a little further. Um, how do you see each orbital basin concept complementing one another to achieve this real-time tracking and fire control solutions uh, for missile defenders that are going to be deployed around the world? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, like I like I said in my my first response, the different orbit regimes uh, have have advantages and disadvantages depending on what set of the the end to end requirements that you're looking at, right? As, as we mentioned before, geo geo is great for warning, right? It's it's that it's that constant presence, um, global coverage. Uh, you don't need a whole lot of vehicles to get that coverage. You've got uh, sensors that have enough sensitivity to see those those bright plumes during the boosting phase of the missile launch, and that's what they were designed for. You know, you go. You know, I think Coach mentioned DSP, the Defense Support Program, that first launched 50 years ago. You know, its its goal was was that strategic deterrence. We got to make sure that we understand if something's been launched, where it was launched from, who launched it, and where it's going. Right. But that was all dependent on um, these ballistic threats, right? So we still need that that warning capability to provide that deterrent. We also need the capability because these new threats, these maneuverable hypersonic threats, are typically launched from the same types of missiles that launch the ballistic threat. So uh, you still need to be able to see them and track them in that in that early phase. But uh, when you get to that post boost phase. Uh, things are a lot dimmer. Uh, those geo assets have more trouble tracking those assets in the post-boost phase with those different uh, different physics and different phenomenology that that has to be tracked. So that's where, when you get into the the, the missile tracking uh, requirements, targets are dimmer. They're non-ballistic, so you can't depend on that those ballistic physics to predict where the target's going to go. You need to make sure you're getting constant measurements, constant looks. Um, and you've got challenging latency requirements. You've got to get that information to the end user, whether it's that passive warning to make sure we get the, the warfighter uh, sufficient warning to react if they don't have defenses de- deployed, or the active tracking where you've got to get that information to, uh, to the, the end game user to be able to uh, launch an interceptor or, or take whatever other action needs to be taken to, uh, to, defend, to defend against that threat. And generally, with the dimmer targets, closer is better, all things being equal, right? Um, you go down to Mio and down to Leo, you're closer to the target. Uh, you kind of take a hit in coverage. Uh, you have to have more handoffs, as was mentioned before, as you go down to the lower orbits. But you can see dimmer targets, and that's that post-boost phase. It's critical to be able to, to, to track those targets as they're maneuvering in that post-boost phase. So. Basically, that that's where you get the different allocation of requirements per orbit to, to optimize it. But that said, you know, Mio can can do some warning, can do some tracking. Leo can do some warning as well. It can, like I said, the belt and suspenders approach. And um, the other piece that was mentioned before was fire control, and that's that's the most uh, the most sensitive, like right before the end game type of type of requirement set. And that's where. You know the Leo and 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 in some cases Mio solutions, depending on which Mio altitude you're at, right? There's there's low media Mio, medium Mio, and high Mio altitudes. 
um, you know, depending on where you field those MEO assets, you might be able to support some of the fire control requirements from that altitude as well. Yeah, awesome. I really appreciate that. Uh, for Chris and Coach, it's obviously important to protect uh, spacecraft against anti-satellite and counter space uh, weapon systems. So uh, what are some of the threats that spacecraft face uh, in each of these orbital regimes and what can be done uh, about such threats? I could spend another podcast just on this alone. I think as Dr. Swanson mentioned, there is a factor of uh, proximity, right? So in low Earth orbit, you're just much closer to the Earth, uh, and therefore uh, the risk calculus that a constellation has to contend with uh, can run the entire gamut from jamming to lasing to uh, potentially microwave weapons or in anti-satellite missiles um, that, uh, you know, just it, it's just easier to plink them when, you can, when they're right, uh, right above you. Now, as you move out to uh, different orbits, you can, uh, I think, and Dr. Swanson uh, mentioned this as well, it's just there's the different distance is a protection all of its own in some cases. So if you're at 12,000 nautical miles or 25,000 nautical, nautical miles, there's just a, you know, many orders of magnitude difference from uh, that low Earth orbit uh, regime. And th- therefore, it's just a different, you know, it's going to be more purposeful. Uh, any t- attacks against those types of systems will uh, likely, if it's core orbital, for example, um, you know, like the Space Force and, and our partners uh, spend a lot of, invest a lot in space domain awareness to maintain, uh, to keep folks from just sneaking up on us. But uh, people are developing, our adversaries are developing counter uh, space capabilities that are, are core orbital. Uh, and so it, all of that drives uh, whether you have a, a mosaic, uh, you know, this multi-layered approach that has uh, the ability, a force design that allows for different, the adversary to, to have to feel different capabilities based on d- those different regimes, uh, as well as the fact that the Space Force as an independent service, uh, you know, this is my opinion, but you can see that this, the force going this way, the service is going to uh, make use of the, the capabilities we have today. We're going to uh, develop new tactics, techniques, procedures. We're going to use, even though it's, it might be a, a fat, juicy target, as some of our senior leaders like to say, uh, we're still going to do our best to uh, to uh, defeat any adversary that attempts to negate these systems. And so as our capabilities grow with new fielded systems, uh, my expectation is those systems will also have more resiliency built into the architecture, whether it's from uh, just by proliferation or other uh, mechanisms. And those mechanisms should allow for uh, your the Space Force operators that, that join now and after me uh, to, to build uh, a fairly robust capability. Again, just like uh, the air domain, right? You see... Um, there is a evolution of uh, air tactics to either gain or maintain air superiority or to uh, survive uh, if you're a high-value asset. And so um, those principles will apply, do apply now, and will continue to apply in the space domain. Yeah, and I'll also add, um, as I've mentioned before, if you look at the Chinese, for example, they have said multiple times that they are deploying what they call a multi-layered attack architecture. And so it only makes sense that if you're going up against an adversary that, A, is building missile systems that are designed to negate the advantage and and, and the ability for us to track these missile systems from a terrestrial standpoint, they're also looking at ways to negate those those sensors from a more active approach by using all these different weapons that Dav mentioned earlier, which was including, you know, jammers and missile systems. So um, keeping all that in mind, it's very important that we understand that because of the proliferated LEO being sort of the answer in a lot of people's minds, resiliency in numbers is not sufficient when you have an adversary that's building a deep magazine of kinetic interceptors and um, has a different view of how um, 
how space is from a more of a big sky view, or maybe even, um, for example, ISR satellites separate from missile warning, but both missile warning and ISR satellites, intelligence satellites, are viewed as battlefield prep, and we view them as more support functions. So it, it's not an if, it's a matter of when, and we, we always deal with a lot of these situations and operations day to day, so it's not like it's also not a future issue on the lower spectrum. We see a lot of this happening daily. So it's something that has to be accounted for um, in design. Well, speaking of which, uh, Dr. Swanson, anything uh, for you to add on this from a design engineering or any other perspective? The other speakers, I think, covered it pretty well. I, I would say, though, that one of the challenges here is you get into a you get into a shooting war here and it becomes a war of attrition, right? And, um, you know, in addition to having the capabilities and the tactics to uh, react to threats, there's also the importance of predicting threats, right? And, you know, having those plans in place to be able to react quickly, whether whether it's predicted or not, to be able to react to a threat and, you know, have a have a, a book full of, of responses ready to go <laughs> and, and to, to make use of those um, countermeasures that are in place to, um, to protect our assets. So, it's uh yeah it, it's a challenging area um it, it is another part of the uh you know kind of keeping up with the joneses you know the, the adversary develops a new capability and we have to respond to it um but i'll just say that you know the the enterprise is is looking at this seriously and is taking action and and, and putting plans in place to address it yeah i again i appreciate uh, the pile on there and as i'm absorbing this i've got to put chris on the spot and ask you know, if we've explored this and the approach is so good, why haven't we tested or deployed it before? Well, that's a good question. And I think the answer is a it's a combination of both policy and technology. So from a policy standpoint, um, as, as Coach mentioned earlier, the um, in, in the post-Cold War period of 1991, after the Gulf War showed the positive advantages that come at the theater level, with these formerly known as strategic missile warning assets from the nuclear war kind of prep stuff, and because of the end of the Soviet Union, and because China hadn't developed itself as a as a fully functional missile and space power yet, we really didn't see the need for a lot of counter space threat protection. So as a result, we looked more at longevity of system for cost savings rather than for maneuverability or durability in a shooting context, shooting war context. Now, part of that also, as I mentioned, from the technology standpoint, Dr. Swanson mentioned, you know, miniaturization of sensor technology, small sets, being able to do a lot of things that even just a few years ago, a lot of the experts didn't think was possible, that you had to build a huge, exquisite satellite to be able to have the, the type of sensor power, um, as well as, as just the ability to do its, its standard mission. Um, but now you can do a lot of things with smaller satellites in multiple orbits that you couldn't do before. And also the cost of launch is dropped, so you can launch more of them for a lot less. And so because of that, of, of those restraints policy-wise and because of the technology advancing, I think we're now at a good point where, where these ideas that have now become a lot more proliferated outside of just academia but into the operator's mindset, I think now is a really good time to put this into play. Well, Chris, isn't it true, though, that uh, there are parts of the DOD that are pursuing various elements of this approach right now? Uh, so how and what, in, uh, you, you know, of what you're proposing, how is it different? Yeah, yes. So as I mentioned earlier a little bit, um, each of these departments within the within the DOD, SDA, Space Development Agency, Space Force, 
Missile Defense Agency, they all have their own their own answers to this problem of missile tracking and fire control. So the proliferated LEO of SDA, the HBTSS, which is hypersonic, uh, and also a ballistic tracking satellite system, as well as the MEO system, which doesn't have a name yet, and then, of course, next-gen OPIR, which is the Sibiris replacement. All of these, all these folks, they, all these have been created in, in separate stovepipes as the answer to the problem. And now with SWAC, the Space War Fighting Analysis Center, looking at their own force design that they put out a few months ago, um, they are starting to get after how to integrate some of these things and which ones are they going to keep and, and move forward with. And so what's different about, about this proposal that, that we put out is, in addition to having a multi-layered approach where you're combining all of the orbits, LEO, MEO, GEO, and POLAR, um, you also need to have something a little bit more than just resiliency. You need to add survivability which means with all those threats we talked about across the counter space spectrum, you need decoys to where people don't know how many satellites are actually active satellites, so they could be wasting ordnance on, on fake ones, just like you would when an, an aircraft drops chaff to confuse a missile system coming after them. Uh, also, the ability to maneuver with more advanced propulsion systems at GEO and, and, he, and uh, MIA, rather, um, because there's less satellites up there than you have for handoff down at the lower levels, you need to have the ability to maneuver out of the way or to maybe even move into a different orbital altitudes based on, you know, anything that needs to be backfilled after, uh, after some hindrances from, from being shot at. So um, this, is, this is a lot different than what people have been talking about. Um, but I think that people are starting to pick up the importance of that multi-layer uh, offers. Well, I want to open up uh, this last question to anybody on the panel, and I'm going to flip a common question that we usually hear in D.C. Uh, normally, people will ask, what will this cost? Uh, but let's let it look at it a different way. What's the price of inaction when it comes to uh, these recommendations and pursuing a multi-orbit space-based missile warning and tracking system, given what we've seen from the adversaries, you know, especially uh, China and Russia? Yes, yeah, like I'll take a response to that, uh, given my earlier discussion about how passionate I am about this. The cost will be immeasurable. Uh, as you have recently heard, General Raymond has identified this missile warning and tracking uh, as one of the number one priorities for Space Force, uh, primarily because you will see if there is to be a conflict someday between the United States uh, and adversaries like Russia and China, these systems will be how they uh, attempt to kill Americans, uh, our allies, and break our stuff, destroy our things. They don't have a U.S. Air Force, and so this is the only means that they have to project power, uh, and therefore we have to have a capability to respond to their force projection. Uh, and just as we see in Ukraine, uh, they are capable enough to, to lay waste to large areas. And so uh, this is a natural evolution, as already discussed now, this third generation multi-layer approach uh, can help us ensure that we maintain that edge that we have shown uh, effective over the past 50 years. Yeah, I've got a comment as well. Um, Another aspect here is is attribution, right? And this has always been a big piece of the, the strategic missile warning mission is not only are you detecting that something's been launched, but you, you can tell who launched it, right? And, and towards where. As the adversaries starting to field these new generation of weapons, even if they're not using them against us, if they're using them against allies or against even, you know, anyone in the world, the ability to detect uh, from birth to death, the and, and maintain custody, track custody of these of these threats as they fly out. Let's the adversary know that we will know who's who's shooting these missiles and and where they're going. Right, 
um, not having that ability to uh, to to lay attribution towards these these threats can can allow a little bit more freedom for the for the adversary to uh, to do things like like we're seeing in Ukraine, right? So it may make them take a step back if they know that we have the ability to 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 see these things and track them all the way through birth to death. So I think that's a that's also a very important aspect of of us needing to field this capability. Yeah, I actually was asked this question by a member of the press during the rollout a couple of weeks ago. And while the scope of the study does not get into necessarily the price tag per se, I would say, as, as kind of alluded to by the other two folks, the amount of damage that these weapon systems can do, both the space-based ones trying to take out the sensors and the missiles that the sensors need to be designed to track, put the lives of our armed forces and our citizenry at risk right now and so and into the future, as 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 Coach mentioned, that these are those systems that people are going to be using against us and our allies in the future. And so the cost of inaction is is our, our job as a national defense establishment is to protect and defend the people, our forces, and our interests. And if that really is the main priority, then I believe that it should be funded accordingly as such. Well, I can't say thanks enough uh, for everybody being here. It's uh, such an incredible topic. And, uh, you know, this is essentially the Space Force. It's almost like the Billy Mitchell moment, right? I mean, you guys are telling us how important this is, and and we really need to make sure that uh, everybody from uh, the average American up to the uh, highest elected officials are tracking all of it. So thanks so much for being here. Uh, thanks, Luke. I really appreciate the chance to to provide my the, the two cents on on a passion project for me. Obviously, the Space Force and and, and ultimately Congress will de- decide uh, what the the funding will look like. Uh, but my hope is that it is a, it is a capable whatever we do have will be the most capable we can provide again for that defense of our us, our allies, and uh, our partners. So thank you for the time. And thanks for the invite to participate. This is a this is a hugely important mission area, and I'm I'm glad it's getting the attention it deserves. So so thanks again. And also thanks for having me. It's always good to be back and chat with you. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.